All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Oh, church. Isn't it so wonderful? I haven't been uh, preaching here since kickoff in September. Isn't that crazy? I guess it maybe didn't go that well. (laughs) But I'm here now and there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) I just love coming to church. It's actually such a highlight um, for our family. It's one of those things that I just look forward to. And I can completely reflect upon the time when Jesus, as a 12-year-old, was lost. His parents misplaced him for three days. And when they finally tracked him down, they found him at the temple And Jesus said, didn't you know I would be at the house of my father? I would be with him. Isn't it so cool that we get to be together, that we get to come and simply just be with our creator for a while? We have such busy lives that to just be able to come and pause and to have no chores to do, nothing to do right now, no social media, no TV, we can just actually have sanctuary I love that so much. So often we're like Martha, aren't we? And we try to earn favor with God. But we come to this place and we get to just be like Mary and just sit at his feet and just hear him speak love to us and tenderness to us. Mark 11 is a very difficult passage. It has been very challenging for me this week. And in order to fully understand and comprehend it, I really believe that we have to have a right standing with God in our own hearts I think about when God spoke to Jesus three times in the New Testament upon his baptism and the transfiguration and at the temple. He said the same two things all three times. I love you and I am proud of you. And this is the stance that God has toward us. We are hidden in Christ. He loves you and he's proud of you. And based on that, We can receive any word knowing the heart of our Father, and it changes everything. Before we begin Mark 11, I'd like to show you a little video that really reflects, I believe, the heart that Jesus is trying to reproduce in us. Check this out. It's so beautiful. Last night, a good friend of mine's house was flooding, and and right after church, I went there to help out. And as I arrived, there were dozens of people in his front yard with water up to their knees, and I asked, like, who are all these people? And he's like, I don't know. They just, they've just come from all around Kelowna. And there was such a love in that yard. Just people from all colors, all, just all different backgrounds. There was such a love and a kindred spirit. People that you'd look into their eyes and just feel such affection for that if you would have passed them on the street, you might have labeled them. When we were in Africa, we, 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 uh, we got to meet our, our sponsor kid. And about 50 little kids showed up, and we danced with them, and we played soccer. And we hugged them, and they'd never seen a camera before. So we took their picture and then showed them their image, and they would just laugh. And, and me and Melissa felt such love for these kids. Incredible, just deep love. And all of these little children were little Muslim kids. And we just felt so much love for them. In India, when men came to take one of our homes, the child of mine homes, they came because they wanted the property, which was right on the river and very valuable. They wanted to come and and displace the orphans. They wanted to actually kill Auntie Moite. And they showed up to attack her and take the land. But a man intervened. 
he locked Antimoite into a building. All the orphans went running. And he took a tremendous beating for all of our kids and Antimoite. This is a hero. He's an unbelievable man. And this was a total stranger, a Hindu man, who's become a hero to our children. While on Skid Row in L.A., I met a lady named Lily, and she's a refugee from the Middle East. She came to the U.S. and had no money and ended up on Skid Row. She ended up getting stuck into prostitution and then drug abuse. She met Jesus on those streets, and she says she was miraculously healed of her addiction immediately. And she went back every single week to find refugees who were just confused, didn't know where to go, didn't know how to navigate the system, and she'd bring them off of Skid Row and get them into housing. This lady is a hero. One time when she went back, her ex-pimp found her, took her away, and attacked her, and her nose got nearly severed in the attack. And when she went in for surgery, she didn't want to repeat the drug abuse, and so she didn't want any painkillers that might re-trigger the addiction. She said, I have to get back on the streets to help people. There are so many people that don't know Jesus. There are so many outcasts. She said, I don't want any painkillers. She went through the entire procedure with no painkillers. Lily is a hero. She's given her life to freeing people. And this is the very heart of Mark 11. 1% of this world is displaced. A full 1%. These are refugees, precious souls created by Yahweh, Abba, their father. 60 million people. And I really believe that the time is right now for revival. Do you guys feel it in the air when you come to church? That there's something different? There's been a shift in the spirit? The prophet Joel says that at the end times, what will happen is many will grow cold, but many will grow fiery hot. And I've noticed this. In the last two or three months, I have led more people to Jesus than any other time in my life. And it's not that I've been more active. It's every single church service people come up and just simply say, I want this. How do I receive Jesus? Every youth night, I can't think of a youth night in the last three months, where somebody hasn't come forward and says, I want Jesus, how do I do it? It's just been constant. It's been growing. And it's so exciting. We've seen more healings in the last few months than ever before. Perhaps more in the last few months than, than all the previous years that I've been here combined. It's unbelievable. And I really believe that it's the time to step up. See, Mark 11 reveals the holy and righteous anger of Jesus because he will fight for his children. He will. It's the only destructive miracle that is recorded in the scriptures is in Mark 11. Jesus performs a destructive miracle. Further, he goes into the temple, he flips over the tables, he releases the animals, he prevents people from carrying goods through the temple courts. Something is going on. Jesus is trying to reveal something really profound that we need to take notice of. And he anchors the entire encounter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 56. If you have your Bibles, take out Isaiah, go to chapter 56. Isaiah, if you, if you 
break your Bible open in half and maybe go two or three chapters, or sorry, books down the road. That's the book of Isaiah. This is the vision that Jesus has for the church. In Mark 11, he says that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. This is the thrust of the entire chapter, and he's quoting Isaiah 56. This is what he was hoping to find when he went to the temple. This is what the Lord says, maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Here's what he gets to. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. What does that mean? A eunuch? How did that get in there? You see, eunuchs were castrated. They often worked with royalty. And to ensure that they weren't sexually tempted, this procedure was done to them. But as a result, they were different. And so they were actually excluded from the temple. They couldn't worship in the temple because of this. When Philip is compelled by the Holy Spirit to go and speak to a man, an apparently rich man, it turns out that this rich man was an Ethiopian eunuch. He tends to the queen of Ethiopia. But he was excluded from the temple himself. And Philip finds him reading the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah speaks of an incredible hope. It's this vision that Jesus is now alluding to where there is no exclusion. He's reading Isaiah with such hope. And Philip comes along and says, the one who's going to fulfill this is Jesus. The Ethiopian gives his life to Jesus and gets baptized. And God is so pleased with this message of Philip that he wants him to speak in another city so quickly that he's actually teleported. The Bible says he's taken up in the spirit and he shows up in another town immediately called Azatos. That is a stamp of approval upon a message. And here's the thrust of Isaiah 56, 7. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But this is not happening in Israel. He goes on by saying, you're evil, you lack knowledge, You're blind, you're mute dogs, you're lazy, and all you do is lie around and sleep. Verse 11 says, they are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn their own way. They seek their own gain. This is the same offense that God levels to Babylon. They worship mammon, God, materialism, wealth, And this is our God in the West as well. Our appetites for more are insatiable, aren't they? We are like discontent. God's people wanted what the Romans had. They so badly wanted it. They wanted power. They wanted wealth. And this is what we see in the passage we're studying tonight in Mark 11. They're just ready for a king. They're so sick of looking at all the power and wealth of the Romans, and they wanted it themselves. And finally, they thought they were about to get it. So let's pick it up. Mark 11, verse 1. 
It says that they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. And tie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. We all know this story. It was just Palm Sunday. This is a really popular narrative that we all understand. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing in tying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. This is a telling moment. At this time, if you received the new king, what you would do is you would cover the path in front of the donkey or the horse. And by doing so, you're saying, yes, I would have voted for you. I receive you, king. This is their way of saying, I support who you are. You're my king. I'm covering your path. Palm branches represent victory. Because they believed that this meant victory for the Jewish people. So they were waving them, covering the path. They're like, yes, this is happening. We're going to win. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They were ready for a king, but they were not ready for the statement Jesus is making. Remember, they wanted what the Romans had, power and wealth. But he came riding on a donkey. Oh, Jesus. A king came riding upon a horse when he was bent on war. He came on a horse when he was saying, I want your land, I want your, your wealth, I want your plunder. We're taken over. But if he comes on a donkey... That represents the fact that he's coming in peace and does not want what that land has. Horse meant war. Donkey meant peace. And Jesus came in on a donkey. You see, he was not fighting to bring wealth and power. But that's all that they wanted. This is what they lived for. Mark 11 verse 12 says, The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Imagine that. We're talking hundreds of people, perhaps thousands, and Jesus is preventing them all from carrying things through the courts. He's stopping them. This is a crazy, crazy scene. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? This was his vision that he had. This is what he was hoping for, contending for. But you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. What in the world just happened? 
Like, why did that go down like that? Remember the vision. Jesus wanted the temple to be the center of justice, fight for the poor, and a place where no foreigner is rejected. This is the vision. And this was Passover, so pilgrims were flooding the city to come to the temple to worship. And that meant offering sacrifices, but they couldn't bring their own animals with them. So that they had to come to the temple, purchase their animals, and then make the sacrifice. If you had money, you could buy a spotless lamb, nice young oxen. But there was a special way for the poor to worship, and they could buy a pigeon, which was extremely cheap. But what they were doing in the temple was so underhanded. These poor, exhausted travelers came to buy pigeons, but they were charging crazy rates. They were robbing the most vulnerable. They had to pay these crazy prices for the pigeons. And it gets worse. The high priests, they were taking a percentage of the profit. These are the dogs that Isaiah speaks of with mighty appetites. The blind shepherds. They were getting rich off the poor in the temple. But there's more. You see, Jewish law required that every man would contribute half a shekel to the temple. Which makes sense because the temple existed to help the outcast and the poor. So it made a lot of sense. Except for in this case, they were getting rich off those poor. But they were told to give a half a shekel because it was a pure coin. It was made of silver and there's no foreign gods off of it. Remember, they were living in Judea under the rule of the Romans. And the money in use at that time was a Roman coin. But they had to give a shekel and they didn't have that. So they had to exchange it, their Roman money, for the shekel. Money changers came in and charged them crazy rates in exchange. They were saying, you have to do this, but then we're going to charge you so much. They were ripping them off. The vision of the church is one of justice, but the temple preyed on the poor, and it also excluded all refugees, people outside of the church. You see, Bible scholars believe that this happened on Solomon's porch, an area called the court of the Gentiles, which is, if you look at this image right here, This is where they would go in and worship the Jews, but the Gentiles had to stay outside. They weren't allowed in to worship, so there was this special place that people could come and meet with the Almighty God. This was a special provision, and this was really important. Archaeologists have found a Greek inscription dating to 20 BC, and it simply says this, no non-Jews passed this point. Failure to do so will result in death. So this was the only place they could go. But Jesus finds all of these thieves in the court of the Gentiles. The place designated for non-Jews to come and pray, it left no room for non-Jews or outcasts to come and worship. And even if they wanted to come and pray, it would have been so loud, so much commerce, so much commotion. They turned the only place for the refugees to worship into a den of thieves. This was a big deal. And Jesus will always fight for the outcast. 
You see, he came to save the lost, and this is what we see all throughout his ministry. Mark eleven nineteen says, When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along and saw the fig tree, we're getting back to the fig tree now. It was withered from the roots. Peter remembered it and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you has cursed has withered. Why did Jesus do this? His only destructive miracle. It must have incredible significance, and it does. You see, Jesus went to that tree. He saw it from a distance, and it had leaves. So Jesus expected that it would have fruit. Because fig trees bear fruit right before they produce leaves. Its leaves promised life and fruit. But it failed to produce anything that could nourish or feed the hungry. It was all show and no action. Fig trees all throughout scripture represent the nation of Israel. If you look in Jeremiah 8 or Hosea 9, the disciples would have known Jesus in cursing the fig tree was metaphorically saying this is the nation of Israel. He was communicating that they were religious outwardly, but spiritually dead. This was so far off of his vision. All leaves, no fruit. They look great, but they're doing nothing for the hungry, the poor, the needy. And this was so far off from what he wanted. You might be thinking, wait a second. Jesus cursed the fig tree before he went into the temple. How did he know what he was going to find in the temple? This is the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. And the first time, Jesus showed up at the temple, and he actually made a whip of cords. And he drove out the sellers. And this was the beginning of his public ministry. A couple of years later is this event, after his triumphal entry, shortly before his crucifixion. It was the second encounter. Nothing had changed in the temple. I got to be honest, this behavior kind of shocks me. I read this and I think, is that Jesus? Is that the Jesus that I know? And I recognize that the Jesus that I know is a Jesus that I have maybe sugar-coated a little bit. You see, he is so serious about fighting for the weak. He says that if we cause any of the little ones to stumble, it is better that we tie a millstone around our necks and be thrown into the sea. This is a violent death, Jesus speaks of, for causing little ones to stumble. He's very serious about protecting the most vulnerable. There's a high cost to our sin, Because it hurts God's children. I think that if we were to look back in this time, a hundred years from now, I think this is what we would notice about our society today, is that somehow we let 30 million people get involved in human trafficking and sexual slavery. 30 million. That's almost the population of Canada. 90% of the pornographic images on the internet are of those involved in sexual slavery. 90%. The World Health Organization says that if demand stopped, that sexual slavery would be ended. That the internet is fueling 
a huge crisis in our culture. You see, our sin has a high cost, a very high cost. In Syria, half of the population is displaced. There's been gas attacks. We've been seeing it on the news. They're going after civilians and children. It's terrible. And around 10 years ago, World Vision and Compassion set out a desperate plea saying, Syria has famine. It's going very badly. But nobody in the West gave because they're Muslim countries. I spoke to the CEO of World Vision about this, and he said they refused to give. And what happened was they were all displaced off of their farms, and they went to cities to find food. It caused such social unrest that we have what we have today. The situation is similar in Sri Lanka. A dump just collapsed three weeks ago. And in this dump, there's thousands of people living in tunnels in the dump. 29 people were killed, mostly kids. And the same thing from World Aid Organizations. They're saying it's because they're mostly Buddhists that the West won't give. You see, sin has a high cost. We're called to contend for the poor and fight for the outcast. Those outside the church, we are called as the church to make space and to be generous. This is, this is what Jesus is calling us to be. And the situation is similar here in Canada. We've been given the greatest tool on earth, Bible camp. Kids pay to come and hear about Jesus for a week. We get to pray for them as much as we want. But as I speak to camp directors across the country, it's the same news. Camp attendance is plummeting. Camps are shutting down. And it's because kids can't afford it. Camp costs are rising quite a bit. And not only that, but so many non-church families don't see any value in it anymore. So why are they going to spend their hard-earned money to send their kid to camp? It's a bit of a vicious cycle. And I just wonder, our kids will go to camp if it wasn't so expensive. Our kids will go to camp if it's free. Imagine if the churches in this country said, we're going to make summer camp available to every kid for free. What would happen to our country? What would be the result of something like that? And I realized that we, maybe we're just a little bit selfish with our money. God's been really convicting me of this. On our LA trip, we stop at a lot of different churches And we'll go in there and they'll just be in terrible condition. The carpets will be a mess. The building will need paint. The roof will be leaking. Our kids will be holding their nose because it stinks so bad. And you know what? At the same time, I know that our houses would never get in that sort of condition. If there was an issue at our house, we would quickly update it or fix it. But we let our camps and our churches and our Bible colleges just rot away. And God just so convicted me. There was a man in our church who who understood that we had just high needs at the ark. And he, he gave me a check and he said this. He said, we don't need carpet in our house. They were building a new house. He said, we can walk on wood for a little while. He says, you know, at the end of the day, this carpet's going to rot anyways. And he said, here, send some kids to camp. And I was so just convicted and encouraged at the same time. You see, our complacency has a cost. And I wonder, when we're not generous, if we're on the take like the high priest. 
This is what God seems to imply in the book of Malachi when he says, you're robbing me by your lack of generosity. I wonder if I'm on the take like the high priest, if I'm a blind shepherd, I wonder. And it's the needy that suffer. I think about Martin Luther King. I think about the fact that he gave his life for civil rights. Had he not stepped up, we might still be in the dark ages in that department. Did you know that Billy Graham was one of the biggest proponents at that time? That he joined Martin Luther King when the rest of the world would not. It was not a popular decision and Billy Graham stepped up. It cost him. But had he not stood, we might still be living in that injustice. You see, his lack of action might have had a huge cost. There's a high cost when we don't produce fruit. I think this is why Jesus is so serious. During World War II, there was a train track behind one of the German churches. And in one service, as the train passed, during the service, they heard the cries of the Jewish people on the trains. And people in attendance said that it broke their hearts, but they said, what can we do? We're powerless. Like, what are we going to do? One of the members of that church recounts the events. He says, every weekend as we heard the train coming, we sang as loud as we could to drown out the cries because we felt powerless. It's not that they didn't have a heart for it. It's that they felt unable to do anything. And I think we do the same. We feel weak and powerless, and so we drown out the injustice that we see in our world. We insulate ourselves. We live vicariously through others on Netflix and TV and movies to just escape. We build man caves to just escape. We get so engrossed in sports because it just takes our minds off of maybe the call that we should be having in this world. Not that there's anything wrong with sports, but we forget that we're children of the living God, and as a result of that, we don't have to look at injustice and feel like, what can I do? Or it's too big of a problem. That's not in the vocabulary of Scripture. John 15 says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is Jesus speaking. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. He doesn't say you might bear fruit. You will. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. That is so encouraging and so terrifying. Branches that don't produce fruit are thrown into the fire and burned. I, I wonder if much of the church in the West has not been cut off and withered. Like the fig tree. Looks the part, but doesn't produce. All leaves and no fruit. I wonder... Jesus said in Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Could this be what's wrong in the West? So we're forced to invent new theology, cessationalism, a belief that the work of the Holy Spirit ceased with the apostles. Because what we read in the book of Acts doesn't line up with what's happening in our churches, so we invent new theology. 
You may have experienced this yourself. You may have produced fruit at some point, but now you feel like you're just all leaves or maybe withered, and you're like, I just don't, I just don't feel like this is a relationship. I hear that he's the living God, but he feels dead. Let me ask you, are you leaves without fruit? And how do we fix it? If we say, yeah, that's me. Do we just work harder? Give more money? Be a better Christian? Be more religious? The answer is absolutely not. None of those. Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Abide. Just abide. Be with me. Intimacy. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who answers, I will come in and share a meal as a good friend. That is a quote from the book of Song of Solomon. He's saying, I desire intimacy with you. Like a bride. I'm going to pursue you and court you. That's what I want. That's from the Song of Solomon. And you will produce fruit. And that fruit will be powerful. It will be intense. Let's finish our passage. Mark eleven twenty two says this. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. They were so amazed by this miracle that they just saw with the fig tree. But Jesus says, truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Oh, this passage is so misunderstood. You see, a Jewish metaphor for a great spiritual leader was a rooter up of mountains. If you're a great spiritual leader, that's what they would call you. It meant just like rooting out a plant or a bush or a tree right from the roots. Jesus was using this metaphor to prove a mighty point. A great spiritual leader, a rooter up of mountains, removed obstacles. This was a phrase for people who accomplished the impossible. Jesus is saying that there's great power available for you. That no obstacle is too great for you to overcome. This is what Martin Luther King and Billy Graham came up against. They became rooter up of mountains simply because they stepped into their calling as children of God. Ask for whatever you want in my name. And when we have intimacy and abide with Christ, the things that we ask for are the things that he wants because our hearts become one. Our desires become the same. It says this, though, having faith and not doubting. Man, we use that phrase to create a lot of hurt, don't we? And to create a lot of bad theology around healing. You see, faith is simply an active term. It's active. If you have enough faith to move in a direction, to abide with Christ, and then to take a step, that's faith. Doubting is an active term. It means actually turning back. It means getting on a different path. Or it means being complacent and doing nothing. It has nothing to do with having a doubt in your brain. Nothing to do with that. 
Faith is not the absence of doubt. That's not what it is. It's the presence of some belief. And it's an action. When Peter stepped out of the boat, you think he had some doubt in his mind. Oh, yeah. But he had all the faith he needed with the step. Think about the parting of the Red Sea. It was the staff that went in that was the act of faith. It was the step. Jesus says that you will be a rooter up of mountains when you abide with me, and then you're obedient to what I call you to just by simply taking that step. You see, here's the thing is I'm sick of a weak church of seeing millions in poverty, and I'm sick of seeing a country where they say, oh, the church is dying in Canada. (laughs) I'm so tired of that. That's not the church that we read in Scripture. And it's not by better programs. It's not by our foolish attempts. It's by abiding with Christ, and then we will bear much fruit. It's simple. It's abiding. They were speaking about revival in Spain, and they did a study on the revival in Spain, and this is what they found, that all the churches that are just exploding at the seams, this is what they found, that the pastors in each of these churches fast and pray for an entire day a week. Thinking, oh, that's counterintuitive. That actually sounds lazy. And we try to do so much in our own human effort. And we as a youth staff, we've decided something completely different for next year. You see, I always think, let's keep moving. Let's work harder. Let's work harder. But next year, starting in the fall, we're taking an entire day a week out of our schedule, and all we're going to do is fast and pray. There's power in abiding. Abide with him, and we will bear much fruit. Apart from being with him, nothing will happen spiritually. You see, I read the book of Mark, and I get so excited because Mark was a sissy. Did you guys know that? Mark was a big baby. He was the nephew of Barnabas. And he went on Paul's first missionary journey. But he left because he found it too difficult. And Paul was angry with him. And Peter had to defend him. And he earned a reputation as a coward. Because he bore no fruit. But something radical happened to Mark is he abided with Christ. He had intimacy with Christ. And he got a completely different identity. Christian legends refer to Mark as Saint Mark the Lionheart. This is an image that you will find of the Apostle Mark. He is now known as the Lionheart. He went from coward to lion. Lion is a figure of courage. How did that happen? The same legends say that he was thrown to the lions, but the animals refused to attack him, that they fell asleep at his feet and he pet them. And he was martyred in 68 AD in Alexandria, Africa by being tied to the back of a horse and dragged through the city. They say that usually if you're dragged behind a horse, it takes about an hour to die. That after a period of time, you just give up and you stop avoiding the obstacles, and you die. You hit something and die. Mark lived for two days being dragged by a horse. Two days he never gave up. He was a lion heart because he wanted to produce fruit so bad. He went from a coward to this man of incredible power and strength. 
He started a church in that very city where he was killed, Alexandria, Africa. And now he is honored as the founder of Christianity in Africa. Did you know that? 200 million believers because of this coward turned lion heart. Oh. There was a stage in his life when he was all leaves and no fruit. I think just like many of us. But something changed. You see, we can leave here and decide to just bear fruit, to be more productive, to do more for the refugees, to be more generous. And that's completely missing everything that Jesus is saying. Don't leave here and decide to bear fruit. Leave here and decide to abide. Leave here and decide to have intimacy. He's inviting you into something so beautiful. Let's step into that. And no obstacle will be able to stop us. We will be rooters up of mountains. That can be each one of us in this place. Nothing will be impossible for us. Oh, praise Jesus. There is such great hope in Jesus. There is such power available to us. We're going to take part in a, such a beautiful tradition right now. It's communion, where we actually commune with our Savior, where we actually share in his death, and in sharing in his death, we share in his resurrection. We're going to worship right now, and I'm going to invite you to come forward and grab the elements, the bread and the juice, and then go back to your seat, and we will take it together after we worship. If you're in the balcony, you will be served. There's not much room to really maneuver up there. But I invite you to come forward, and in doing so, it's that step of faith like Peter took, like Moses took. It's saying, I am actually moving, and that's all the faith that it takes. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion together as a family. Jesus, God, I pray that you give us incredible courage God, I pray that we'd be like Lily, like Martin Luther King, like Billy Graham. Jesus, I pray that our church would be a church that makes room for the outcast. God, I pray that for each of us individually, that we would not be like those who have all leaves and no fruit, Jesus. We look the part, but we do nothing for those that are hungry and needy. Holy Spirit, I pray that at this very moment, you would just ignite a passion within us to abide with you. Jesus, just a deep passion, God, that will create fruit in us that will shock our friends and our neighbors and our family. God, we pray for nothing less than that each one of us in this place would be a rooter up of mountains. God, in our families, God, that no obstacle would remain. God, in this city, that no obstacle would remain to coming to the King of Kings. God, in our province, God, I pray for this election, Jesus. God, you're the one that appoints. God, help us to simply be faithful. And oh. God, I think about our country Jesus, we just pray for revival, God. We see it coming. God, we pray that we would be the ones that would not grow cold, God, but instead we would be the ones that would just grow fiery hot, Lord. Jesus, we love you. We thank you 
that you offer communion to us, intimacy with us. Thank you that you died so that we are hidden in you and we are now the ones that are loved by God. We are the ones that you are proud of. Thank you, Jesus. God, we give you our lives. We give you our time. Amen.